Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Priya Sharma, the acclaimed short story writer, about her first fantasy novel, Orm Shadow. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA epic fantasy, Girl of Fire, the first in the Barona Quest series, and the historical fantasy Falcon series. Here's my impression of the book. A slim volume you can swallow in one melancholy winter afternoon, best with sips of a mellow amber whiskey with undertones of peat. Orm Shadow is more about human beasts than the actual dragon that slumbers under the earth. The fraternal archetypes, the civilized and wild brother, are seen through the eyes of a bewildered child Gideon, who becomes a man during the course of the story. The two brothers in question are Gideon's father and uncle. Gideon's father, John, is a scholar, happy with books, but also bound to the land and what lies under it. Uncle Thomas, first described in a sentence that can be read several ways, is a dark man. When Gideon's father, John, is forced to bring his family back to the farm where he and Thomas grew up. Familial competition raises its ugly head. From a lone, mysterious carved chair to John's beautiful wife, everything seems to be contested ground. John often yields both to his demanding wife and his volatile brother, Thomas. It seems Gideon, who has inherited John's gentle nature, is fated to be an underdog as well. But Gideon's kindness and gentleness have won him protection among forces more powerful than men. And now a little about Priya. Priya Sharma's fiction has appeared in venues such as Intersound, Black Static, Nightmare, The Dark, and Tour. She's been anthologized in several of Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year series and Pola Guran's Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror series among other. She's also been on Locus Recommended Reading Lists. She's a grand judge for the Aon Award, an annual writing competition run by Albedo One, Ireland's magazine of the fantastic. Her collection of short stories, Fabulous Beasts, was a Shirley Jackson Award finalist and won a British Fantasy Award for short fiction. So now we're going to have Priya read some from Orm Shadow. I'm going to read from Orm Shadow. Um, It's a story of a boy called Gideon who lives in the city of Bath in England. And um, after his father loses his job, the whole family relocate back to the family farm in a place called Orm Shadow. Um, And this is from a chapter where 
Gideon and his father go up onto the Orm together for the first time. Son, look. Gideon stood beside his father. The sun made a fuss of setting, bleeding red and orange into the sea. Gideon could smell salt. The vastness of the ocean was still new to him. This is the Orm, Gideon. Ahead of them, the outcrop of land dipped to meet the waves below. Behind them was the track leading back to the farm, flanked by yellow gorse and purple heather. I don't like it here. Gideon blurted out the words. I'm in the farm, in the village. Bath was row of rows of graceful townhouses. Children played with hoops and skipping ropes in the lanes. There was the sound of laughter and street hawkers. The smell of chestnuts roasting in the growing braziers. Rolling carriage wheels followed the horses' hooves that rang out on the cobbles. And at dusk, the oil lamps were lit, hanging in the misty streets like magic lanterns carried by giants. Here in Orm's shadow, ragged children ran along in the muddy wheelwoods of carts. They stared at strangers. When Gideon said hello, they continued to stare in silence. There was only a chapel and an inn. Unlike the cornfields around Bath, there was coarse grass fighting against the wind coming in off the sea. Gideon, this is my land, so it's yours too. All of the farm? No, this half. Just this half, mind, and that's important. From over there, he pointed back across the miles to where they'd come from, to all the way over here, to the tip of the orm. So this is the orm. Yeah, she's beneath your feet, behind us where the land rises before it dips in her hindquarters. This ridge is her backbone. Her spine ran away from them down the centre of the orm. Limestone showed through in patches seamed with lichen. She was taking shape beneath Gideon's feet. Sheep scattered as they walked. Gideon felt they were high up enough to reach out and grasp the sky. The gulls that hovered and fell on the wind had stopped soaring and screaming, retiring to holes in the cliff face around the bay. The air was changing from warm amber to cool, dusky blue. This is my favourite place, Gideon. Not the library. Gideon met the old master's library in Bath, where his father worked. Sometimes Gideon was allowed to go there with him and look at the rows of spines, gold lettering tooled into the leather. Rolled maps were stored in brass tubes. There were butterflies skewed in cases, beautiful things the size of a man's hand, their iridescent wings marked with blind eyes for protection. Gideon had wanted to know why they were so dangerous that even in death they had to be contained. His father had laughed. Gideon wished he could take back the question about which place father would like best, because he looked so sad. Where there are books, there's learning, and there's no finer thing, but a man needs more. The soul must be fed, not just stomach and mind. He needs peace. Some people find it in church. I've always found it here. Welcome to the show, Priya, and thanks for making time to us. Listen, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's great to, to talk to you. Yeah, same here. So I'll jump right in on the questions. I've touched a bit on the brothers in my review. Uncle Thomas is brooding and temperamental. 
with a liking for drink. John is kind, noble, and learned. I can think of several mythical and literary pairings, but were there any that inspired you particularly? Um, no, I, I, and I love your sort of take on the brothers um, and the differences between them. I think, I think for me, when I was writing them, I, I kind of wanted to um, almost turn that on its head a little bit. Um, I mean, the, the two brothers at, at first, like you're right, one of them is, is very dark and difficult. Um, and the other one seems to be a bit of a bright light. Um, but I think as they evolve, I think it got a little bit more questionable. I think John, on the face of it, is a very sort of kind character. He's kind to his nephews. Um, you know, he, he wants to, to be a very positive force in, in everyone's life. But he has done some quite selfish things as well. And I think, I think the problem was, um, I, I think they're both very similar men. But one of them is an example of what happens when you, you nurture somebody. So John was very much encouraged by his parents to, to go off and be a scholar. And his dreams were, were nurtured. Whereas Thomas's skills as a, um, you know, he, he loves the land. He loves the dogs. Um, he could have been a, a, a breeder and a trainer. Um, they weren't. They, he was the brother that was held back. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, I think when John goes off and leaves um, leaves the farm, he, he does his younger brother a great disservice. Um, and I think, again, then he abandons those dreams to, to marry Claire. And then, without having too many spoilers, he actually makes quite a rash decision that uh, and leaves his family abandons his family so on the light of things it, perhaps it, although he's a good man some of his decisions are quite bad um and almost quite selfish um i think there are moments when i think perhaps thomas does show kindness and compassion but he's so um he's so smothered um and he's so repressed i think it's it's he's ashamed of those feelings um, you know, you only see it, for example, when he's, he's with the dogs um, and there's a section where he's lambing, um, he's watching um, Gideon lambing and I think he's quite proud of him and he finds him very capable. Um, he says later to Maud, no, I, I, need, I need Gideon's help, not my son's, but I need Gideon's help because he knows he's, he's a very capable young man. Um, and I think part of him is actually very pleased and proud about that, but he would never show it. So unfortunately, all the you know all of that is hidden, very hidden and very repressed in him. That's why he's so brooding. Oh, I was thinking of a classical pairing like Apollo and uh, Dionysus, but this makes much yeah. more sense. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, they're very Cain and Abel, aren't they? The two of mm-hmm. them, um, definitely. Um, and I, I guess it. I guess that wasn't, I knew I wanted their relationship to be kind of the driver of a lot of the events, but I hadn't, hadn't thought of classical pairings, but they are, but yeah, they're very much a pair, definitely. Um, the two of them are, are kind, of the, kind of the engine for the whole thing. Well, and they're both owners of the farm in Shadow, where the dragon is buried under a layer of soil and grass. Thomas also covets the ancient chair with dragon carvings. 
which is associated with the dragons. He makes a point of sitting in it. In reality, though, it is only John and later Gideon who have a relationship with the Om, the slumbering dragon. Thomas is gifted in working with dogs, as we mentioned before. He has a true affection for them. So how are the different beasts that each of the brothers are drawn to? How do those reflect on their natures? Um, I think um, for John, it's something um, more esoteric, isn't it? It's something that's more kind of lofty. It's very mental, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very based in, in although although there's questions about are, are they real or not, that, you know, it's, it's very steeped in folklore and legend and, and the telling of stories, which is very much what he's about. Um, you know, and it's also about, you know, family history and um, and almost, yeah, almost provenance of, of their whole family. Whereas I think Thomas is very earthy. It's very much here and now. It's what he can grasp. It can what he, It's what he can hold. It's very real. Um, you know, the dogs, you know, he loves them, but it's a very practical thing as well. They're useful to him. Um, although he does genuinely love them, that you know, it's very much of the earth. I guess I did think that um, Thomas probably would do better with a beast that can be servile than John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, definitely. I think I think he's spot on with that. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, you know, he he kind of is the alpha male, isn't he, of mm-hmm. his pack, whereas. With with John, it's a, it's a quite an intellectual link, and it's something greater than him. Mm-hmm. It's something bigger than him. Um, so yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think you think you're right. Well, through a series of events, John's wedding ring becomes part of the hidden dragon treasure. The dragon treasure is full of jewels and gold. However, when Gideon chooses, he wants only his father's wedding ring. Why is that? I think that's the only thing he feels that is really his. I think he's got a lot of survivor guilt. Um, and I think to him, you know, I think at one point, um, I think I think he almost needs to be persuaded to accept it, um, you know, his legacy, if you like. But I think that's the one tangible thing that is that he feels really is his, and it's, it's a link to his father. Um, and everything that, you know, that represents. I think that's really important to him. Um, and I think he gave it gave it to the Orm as a gift, and I think she returned it. I think it was almost kind of a blessing mm-hmm. from her. Oh, yes. So he... It would be like a blessing. I could see that. Yeah, it, it was kind of almost giving him permission to to kind of get on with the rest of his life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Are we adding too many spoilers here? I don't know. Um, but I, th- I think that that's the one kind of tangible bit left because everything else is gone. It everything is. else, every link to his past is gone, and that's that's all he has left. Um, and to find that amid all of that, you know, everything that he's been given, that that's the one thing that he he values the most because I don't think he, he values money for its own sake. Um, I, I, there's a, a line earlier on when it, where his father tells him what, what you know, 
asking, sorry, what is the value of this? What is the value of money? What what does it mean to you? Um, and I think it hearts back to that question of, um, you know, something only has value, um, you, you know, because the character um, that ends up in the belly of the orm, um, you know, is the, the, the guy who made the chair, mm-hmm. um, one of his, his distant relatives, um, when you're in the belly of the beast, as it were, and you're starving, <laughs> what value does gold have? And it very much harks back to um, conversations I had with my dad. He grew up in, in rural India, and, you know, when you see poverty there, and, you know, you can't eat gold. Yeah. You know, you can obviously, it has monetary value and you can sell it, but ultimately something's only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. Um, you know, and that's the same as everything. You know, we 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 assign these things monetary value but ultimately the you know when you starve and the only thing that has has value is bread and probably then family connections and having yeah. community are as useful as having a chest full of gold is if food is scarce anyway yeah absolutely absolutely so i think for him it's you know it's it has you know it resonates with without you know his his kind of father's philosophy and, you know, and, and also the, the importance of, of oaths and pledges and, and promises. Mm-hmm. Well, Gideon grows from an innocent and sensitive child into a naive young man who is confronted with a terrible truth. His moment of realization culminates in a natural catastrophe which affects the land all around the farm. I suspect that Gideon has been subliminally aware of the truth all along, but suppressed it. Could we compare the natural catastrophe to what happens in the human psyche when we suppress something until it erupts into consciousness? Yeah, I think so. I think it's seismic. What happens, What that realization, that moment of, of the truth, I think... Even it, I think when we're young, we kind of absorb all, all the events around us as relatively normal if we've got no other yardstick to compare it to. And I think the moment that, I, th- I think sometimes there, there are serious moments or moments where we reassemble those and we then understand the significance of them um, through adult eyes or certainly more mature eyes. Um, and I think when you've done that, I think perhaps it just changes the nature of reality mm-hmm. um, of what you've experienced, you know, um, be it in a positive or negative way. Um, and I think for him, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of almost a manifestation of of that horrible realisation of, of kind of all the lies that he's experienced and, and the reasons why things happened that were so tragic in his own family. Um, and yeah, I think I think I think he is naive, um, and I think it's it's interesting because I think people who've read it, some people feel he's quite a passive character. Um, but I, I think it's hard. I don't think at, at the age he was going through those things, we are none of us are the kind of the kind of the agents of our own destiny. There mm-hmm. is a, a powerlessness in childhood, um, and I think he he stays because he doesn't see that he's got any other options um or you know it's at a time when i suppose 
even you know quite young children work you know um in that era you know you, you see children labouring on farms you see them up chimneys <laughs> you, you know they, they they go on the road they have jobs um you know but at the same time i think he feels that I think he's very trapped there. I think he's trapped because he doesn't know what his future is. Um, and I think I think having that moment where everything sort of realigns um, suddenly throws open all these possibilities. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think it's I think it's literally there are massive aftershocks, um, <laughs> which is part of part of what we, you know, it, it takes this physical manifestation, if you like. Well, let's talk about the land around Orm Shadow. There is the Orm, and then the Orm Shadow, and Orm Sleep. And there are different geographical locations in your story. Can you tell us a bit about them? The actual, the actual, um, there is a piece of land called the Orm um, in North Wales, um, a place called Landudno, which is, um, I spent a lot of time there um, before I wrote this, and it's it's a lovely piece of sort of headland that juts out into the sea, and it slopes at the end, so it looks like a, a dragon's head in the water, and it's it's a, a Norse word, or um, mm. the other the other version of it is worm or dragon. Mm-hmm. So that piece of land is is on Ormsleep Farm, and the farms split down the middle between the brothers one and John owns the half that has the orm on it it's been specifically left to him which is another example of how John's father who we you know we, he doesn't figure largely in the book but he, he's given him that special bit of land it's another example of kind of favoritism between the brothers mm-hmm. um, but he owns that half and orm shadow is the village that's in the shadow of the orm um, and the Orm Shadowers are a, a breed un, <laughs> unto themselves, really. Yes, um, they're different, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, they are quite different. But yeah, that that kind of describes that that part of um, that part of the world. And, and there's a town called um, Carside, which is is further along. It's much more prosperous. It's much more positive. It, it's a, a better land for farming, um, whereas the Orms. And Orm Shadow, um, Orm Six Farm are all a slightly, it's slightly more difficult to territory to live on. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a distinct writing style which garners admiration. One thing I noticed is the personification of natural forces. A sunset fusses, a fire crackles and spats, angry at being newly lit. Is this a quirk you've intentionally cultivated? Um, I think nothing about my writing is intentional. <laughs> I think it's all very gut driven, um, and that's the sort of writing I think I've, I've kind of I enjoy. Um, so I, I've kind of absorbed that I think, and I, I like to look at things that way anyway because I think it makes you see them afresh. Mm-hmm. I think I think we spend a lot of time with our our eyes closed walking through life, and I think that. Um, I mean, I did a fantastic workshop, actually, at the last British Fantasy Con with someone called Georgina Bruce, talking about how we can, you know, as writers, um, by changing our perspective on things, um, derealisation in writing 
makes us look at things with fresh eyes and I think that's a, a great way of doing it. It's one example of doing it really. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think, I, I think my probably writing style is an amalgamation of so many different things. Um, I mean, I'm always interested in style in, in other writers and, mm-hmm. you know, um, recently been reading a, a guy called um, Cyan Jones who I really love. I love his style, a short what? story collection by... What's his Sorry, name? Sorry, go on. Um, it's C-Y-A-N, and his surname's Jones. He's a, a Welsh poet and writer. Mm-hmm. Writes very short novels, um, but has a very distinctive style. It's very poetic. Um, it, it's very um, very tight, concise writing. Um, and interestingly enough, the other writer I was going to mention, Sarah Hall, is also a poet, and I think um, her short... I've just finished her short story collection called Sudden Traveller, um, and again, the language and the use of language and, and imagery is just brilliant. I think I think poets are very much the ninjas of writing. I very <laughs> much um, envy poets. I don't always understand what they're doing, but I think um, it, there's just something about it that, you know, they're writing that really excites me. Well, thanks for the recommendations. Uh, we will look into those. There is also another side of your writing, uh, which is very pragmatic and historically founded. For instance, there are detailed accounts woven into the novel, such as the process of shearing sheep. And elsewhere, there was a reference of someone wearing a mourning brooch made with some hair. So your work falls under the category of fantasy, but you are attracted to realistic details do you do a lot of research? I do loads of research, which is why I'm so slow. I'm such a slow writer. But I think, I think, um, I think the thing about research is you can't chuck it all in because then you, you know, it slows the story down. But mm-hmm. I think sometimes those little details are kind of what breathes breathes life into to what you're writing. Um, I mean, I love research anyway. I'm really quite geeky. I watch videos on sharing. Um, you know, I'd, I've got a friend who had got a small holding with a few sheep on. I, I spoke to them. Um, I read a lot around working dogs as well for, for Thomas's character um, and, and illnesses in dogs and how they manifest. Um, so, yeah, I, I love research because sometimes it, it, you find a little detail that you think that would be a great plot driver. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only when I started to read about um, working dogs that there's the a section, and again, I don't want to add any spoilers, um, where one of the dogs get, gets ill. And I think that's a really, really important um, section of the book for, for perhaps demonstrating the sort of person that Thomas is and, and what there is actually inside him. Um, but that came from that research. And I think sometimes it just can change the course or add a really interesting or important detail to a book, um, you know, or even my short stories, I do loads of research. Um, and, and I just, I don't know, it, it, it's great. It's great for language. It's great for texture. Um, you, you've got to create a sense of a whole world outside the pages. Um, and I don't, even if you're not um, putting all that detail in, it, I think it shows in, in, in what you put in, in your construction um, so I, for me, I, it's part of my process that I really enjoy. And I think, you know, I, I love historical novels anyway um, and, you know, period dramas. So I think 
you know, in, a, in an unconscious way, you absorb a lot of that um, before you even get to the page. You know, that's there in your lexicon, if you like. So it sounds like it's quite a source of inspiration for you. Uh, oh, definitely. So another source of inspiration is love for people. And what is the understanding of love for the different characters in Orma's Shadow? Um, I think for John, um, love, love definitely books. Um, love is, is Claire, almost to the point of blindness. Um, he doesn't, I, th- I think he's almost foolish in that love. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, he's totally, you know, he's totally besotted by his wife. Um, I think for Thomas, I think love was actually John. I think he adored his brother. I think he loved his brother. I think he admired his brother. He looked to his brother. And I think he felt abandoned by his brother ultimately when he left. Because he left and he didn't really look back. He, he'd not met, when at the start of the book, he'd not met um, his wife. He'd not met um, Maud. Thomas's wife. He'd never been back. That's um, true. Yeah, there's. I, I think in in a lot of ways, I think I think John feels, um, Thomas feels very abandoned, um, and and love is 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 dogs. I don't think he loves Maud. I don't think he respects Maud. Um, I don't think he really, you know, he doesn't really show any love for his children. Um, I think for, um, I think for Gideon. I think he really loved his father, and I, I think the Orm became a surrogate father. Um, and I think he, he he loved Eliza as well. Um, I think he did too. And, yeah, I think he did. And I, I think when I think their misunderstanding comes from him trying to show her respect in a way that no one else ever had. Um, and I think Eliza loved him as well. I think she 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 loved him, but I think she felt. And again, I, I suppose this is a spoiler. I think she felt spurned. Um, I mean, she's someone who um, she's at one point it, you know, she's a very vivid person, and and it shows when you know she, she in what she notices about the day that she was excited about telling him about. And I think I think if the circumstances had been different, um, they would have been a very happy couple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for Maud, um, love was sisterhood. Um, I've read reviews that very much describe her as a bit of a drudge, but actually I think Maud's a very kind person. I think she, um, the book mentions her having a sister and who died and she very much misses sisterhood. And I think that's why she was so excited to meet Claire. (laughs) And there is a spark of something at the start of that, their relationship, you know, when they're making the dress and um, having fun together, you know, she, she misses female companionship. Her daughter's only very small. So to have another woman in the house, I think was really exciting. So, and she's kind to other women. She's kind to Eliza and her mother where other people are very snobbish and spurn them, where she sends them food and she looks after them and she goes when, when one of them's having a child, you know, whereas everyone else looks down on them. So there's a lot of kindness in, in in Eliza. I guess what I was thinking about in particular with that question was that several of the women, and I don't want to say who and give away too much of the novel, 
but several of the women seem to feel that love is equivalent with a kind of fierce possessiveness on yeah, the part of I a think, man. Yeah, I, and I think I think for Claire, I think she's a very and, and I don't judge Claire. I think other other people reading them judge her and fight. Um, and I kind of don't really. Um, and it, I think if I've, if I've, for Claire, love is fierce. Mm-hmm. Love is, 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 is loud. Love is, is, is grand gestures. Um, there's a conversation between her and John about what love is and what they understand by love. And her, you know, her feeling of, of, um, love is completely different to his and that's not a failure on either their parts it's just a misunderstanding it's just a, a lack of um it, they just don't tessellate really even though he feels very fiercely for her um he's not a demonstrative man in that way i think he is more intellectual so one last question priya has justice been served at the end of the novel um i think that's a brilliant question and i think i think I think there will be some readers who find the ending unsatisfactory. I I don't believe in neat packages of justice. I think justice is seldom served in a way that makes everybody happy in life. Um, I think there is a form of justice um, in the end, but I think it's it's wide sweeping and untargeted, and it, it it's it takes in a lot of people that shouldn't have been included in its 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 scope as it were um i I don't i'm not a i'm not one for very very neat tied up endings i think you know i think my characters are flawed they're fallible that's what interests me about them um there's no black and white i hope if I, i if i've done it right um so i think there's i don't think even gideon is happy with the outcome but that's life, mm-hmm. is it not? Yes, well, thank you for taking out the time to tell us more about John and Thomas. I feel like I understand them better now. What are you working on these days? Uh, currently, well, I've just finished two pieces. Um, one of them is a bit of a departure for me. It's definitely more fantasy-heavy. It's quite baroque. It's about the nature of stories inside stories um, and swapping identities. Um, so I've got all my fingers crossed for that. I've also finished something um, that's on a to-be-read pile about um, the second coming in the north of England. Mm. So, yeah, very different to, to previous work. And I'm about to start work on something a slightly longer piece about um, about an island and a doctor that goes to work there. So, yes, that's, that's still very much embryonic. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of projects waiting for you, perhaps even this Sunday. Thanks for stopping in to talk with us. Listen, thank you for your, your really interesting questions, and thank you for your time. Great. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Priya Sharma about Warm Shadow. To keep up with Priya, visit her website, 
www.riyasharmafiction.wordpress.com Join me in February when I talk with Sadie Kozlov about her debut fantasy series, A Queen in Hiding. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA Fantasy Girl of Fire, as well as the historical Fantasy Falcon series. You can find out more about my work at my website, gabriellemassey.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. That's at Gabrielle Author, capital G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, Author. Talk to you in February.